to the Overcomers Podcast with Brandon Grimm. This is episode six already. If you missed the last episode, which was my interview with Mike Krasinski, you can find the link to that and all of the other episodes at www.brandongrimm.org podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and feel it provides value to your daily life, then go ahead and hit subscribe or follow whether you're listening on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or Anchor. If you want to connect with me on social media, you can find me at brandongrimm247. Currently doing most of my social media engagement on Instagram, so if you haven't already done so, go ahead and hit follow on my page at brandongrimm247 so we can be connected on there. On today's episode, I'll be playing an interview that actually took place in 2003, and it was recorded on a cassette tape, yes, cassette tape, um, that I saved. I saved it for a really long time. I had no idea why I was saving it, but I was just kind of holding on to it. And I actually forgot about it for several years, but in the last few years, um, I've definitely been holding on to that in a special place because I knew I wanted to do something with it, but wasn't quite sure. Uh, that was until I started the podcast. Once I started the podcast, I knew I had to share this audio, not only with my family and friends, um, but everybody else. And I'll explain the reason for that in a few minutes. So this will be an interview with my late grandfather, Floyd Pap Grimm. And this was for a college paper. The questions were formulated. I had to ask certain questions. Um, it was a history class. We had to ask certain historical questions and follow kind of a script. Um, these are not the questions I would obviously ask anymore. Unfortunately, Pat passed away uh, three years ago. And if he was obviously still around now, I would ask a slew of different questions. Um, but this is what I have. And I'm very grateful to be able to find this audio again and be able to remove it from the cassette tape and put it onto the computer, uh, which was surprisingly more difficult than I anticipated because I don't really know what I'm doing. Um, and for today's standards, the audio is its not going to be the best. It's not going to be top-notch, but I kind of like the way it sounds and feel. Um, if he were to record some sort of interview that he would not want it all cleaned up and edited, um, he would probably want some duct tape on it in some fashion. So that's kind of what we've done, and it's only 30 minutes of audio, or about 30 minutes, and several sections were missing, and it does jump around a little bit at the end for some reason, so the editing that I've done, I've had to just kind of piece it together um, so there were not chunks of silence mixed in, and had to kind of connect the audio a little bit. So I had a few takeaways from this experience, and the biggest thing that I've learned is that no matter how grateful I am to hear his voice and how much it makes me smile, no matter how much, how no matter the amount of audio uh, that I have, it would never really be enough um, since he's not here anymore. So I'm just happy. I have to keep reminding myself to just be happy with uh, the amount of audio that I have from this interaction. Just to be able to hear his voice um, obviously makes me reminisce and it makes me smile and just happy with what we have. So to, uh, to the Grimms and everybody that knew Pap, um, I would say I hope that this makes you smile and remember him, but I know he is never too far from any of our thoughts, and as soon as you hear his voice, you will smile and probably start to tear up like I keep doing. And to everybody else, kind of sharing and letting you in um, to kind of the family aspect of this, and I wanted to share this experience with you for, for two reasons. Um, first, I know... Each of us has or will experience loss on some sort of level. It is something that we all have to fight to overcome um, in varying degrees. And I hope that this 
episode makes you stop for a second, makes you makes you just take a second and think of somebody that you have lost and 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 that makes you smile and go back into the memory bank to relive some of those great moments and I know the busyness of life, the chaos of life makes us sometimes not stop and think and reminisce enough about uh, the people that used to be in our lives but are no longer here. And the second thing is, is I hope this ignites something inside of you to reach out to someone that is currently in your life or maybe not even your life anymore, but, but they're still living and you're able to reach out to them. I hope that you reach out to that person and tell them that you love them and how much you appreciate them. Because e- even though Pap was around for 87 years and obviously 30 years of my life, it seems like the, the busyness of life just makes those years seem like a brief moment sometimes. And to be able to stop, kind of reflect, and go back in time, uh, it's, it's a pretty cool experience to be able to do. So here we go. Um, I hope you enjoy spending the next 25 to 30 minutes with the man that we call Pap. There's 13 of us all together in our family. We lost Wilbur. Actually, he died before I was born. But he was six years old. He had a tumor. He died. But uh, as time went on, at that time, when Sarah got married, uh, remember, all of us kids were still at home at that time, except now Sarah's the first one in the mansion out. And Roy worked in the mines at that time. So they come, both of them come to live with us. At Lincoln Hill. We was still Lincoln and Hill. And then Libby got married to Auburn, and he was monkeying around with the coal mines at the time, and they come home to live for a while. Not long, but for a while. So we had a house full of people. That's the way it was. All right, next question is yeah. your thoughts on Mrs. Roosevelt. Oh, well, she was, she, she was a tough girl, you know, uh, and well-respected, but... Uh, uh, some thought she ran the country, you know, <laughs> but it's almost like uh, like uh, old uh, Reagan and Nancy. You know, Nancy ran the country, <laughs> yeah. mostly. But anyway, that was yeah, that was her. As far as we, you know, we were just kids then, but yeah. that was the thing that we've always heard was she uh, kind of run the country. Just started Girl Scouts. Yeah, I think you know, behind probably, that. probably so. They were behind a lot of things, you know. They because they were around a long time. Next one is, did your family listen to President Roosevelt's fireside chats on the radio? Oh, I would, I would imagine my dad did, you know, as far as us kids, you know, we would do it. That wouldn't have interest us. But, uh, well, that's, the things that we did from school was we hurried home. It's strange. As, now, you kids got all these fine language things here. But here we had... Gangbusters, Jack Armstrong, Easy Aces, uh, 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 all these. Uh, Did you have the shadow? Sh- we had the shadow. Yeah. And then we had them, uh, ones, the other guys that uh, had the squeaking door, Fibber McGee and Molly. But anyway, the, the, the gangbusters and the, uh, 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 Tom Mix, that was the, our cowboy thing. Tom Mix, now, like I said, we didn't have the money anyway. But Tom Mix put out a pistol. You send for this pistol with uh, box tops. Everything was at that time Wheaties or yeah. something sponsored, and you'd, you'd say the box tops were. But we didn't have the money. Albert, uh, 
Albert was pretty slick. So he wrote to them and told them that they didn't send his gun to him. Now, we had to send for it. <laughs> and they sent him the gun. <laughs> and we was always afraid he was going to get arrested for it. That was comedy. Did you go to the movies? No, I didn't go to a movie. I seen t- uh, Tim McCoy was my first movie at the Court Theater in Washington. What was the name of that? Uh, the cowboy was Tim McCoy. And uh, he, uh, uh, like I said, it was, it was my first movie. But anyway, they used to run the train right at you in the movies, and you looked like you had a duck. But now, here comes the crooks now. He's, he's got in the bushes, uh, and he put oil on the corner of the road because he had an old Model T car and crooks were coming in. And they co- that's the only scene I can remember. They come down and naturally spun around and stopped. And out of that bush come these two pistols. And I was looking right down the barrel of both of them. I ducked down behind the seat. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that was it. What no. kind of music did you listen to? There was no music for us to listen to. You know, you got, like I said, you got in on your gangbusters and the, uh, that kind of stuff. And then was only 15-minute things. You know, that's how that worked. 15 minutes and went, well, we hurried home and listened to it. Kate Smith. Kate Smith was my, that was our noon. Uh, that was our noon to Kate Smith, was she? She did, she just died. She had a few years back. Yeah. But she sang that, you know. God bless America. God bless America. And she still is the only one who can sing it. <laughs> um, we used to say every time Kate Smith sang it, Dad got up saluted. <laughs> what else did you do for fun? Oh, man. We did everything. Never, never had toys. There was no such thing as having toys. My first, my first good uh, Christmas gift was a soccer ball. I was 11 years old. I can remember that because uh, I was so disappointed. I only got one gift that year. That was that soccer ball. But my my soccer ball cost more than the other kids altogether, you know. But we had to knock down an old briar patch. It was next to us there, and we played soccer like crazy. I've got marks on my legs yet from them because we, you know, kick each other. Yeah. But you, your entertainment was Big Trouble, Little Trouble, wasn't it? Oh, Mainly? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We just, uh, we, there was a, see, oil wells was all over Lincoln Hill. And it was a stream that ran down. It was, you kind of played in your row. We, the row we was in. I'll tell you, how, I didn't even realize this until much later in life, how lucky we were. Now, my dad was always a foreman or something in the mines. So the first row... The way that is in Lincoln, now this is the way, just like this table here. And the coal mine is down here across this road. And the first row was around there. Was, our house was in that. And we had indoor plumbing. Never thought much about it because all the years, the honey dippers, we called them honey dippers, would come and clean them out in my other toilets. And then there was four, let's see, there was one. Because Libby was in the next one. And there was another one. Another one. There was four rows of them. And Edna lived on the top on the end of the hill, went up the hill like that. But yeah, and so, so anyway, in this here was this stream that ran down like four or five houses from us, and that was our limit where we played. And we had a stream over there, and we'd put sticks across the stream and catch this oil, because oil was always flowing. And that's how we made our fires. Like in the fall time, we always built these little old grass. Nobody, you know, lawnmowers. There was a no such thing as a lawnmower, you know, grass grew as high as the house sometimes, you know, <laughs> and we'd pull this yellow grass out, 
and these bamboo sticks, it was kind of a bent stick. And now in my times, it, it seemed like it was a big deal, big thing. But it was probably just a little bigger than a couple guys could crawl. Tonight at 11 on Channel 4. In that haylight, it was dry. And uh, we always, we was always using uh, inner tube rubber bands for shooting everything. And it was a weed. that you pulled it straight up, it had a root on about that long. And it was a straight thing. And you could shoot them like an arrow. <laughs> anyway, it seemed to me like they was half a mile away, but there's probably only to the wall. And we'd dip those things in oil, get them on fire, and we'd shoot back and forth and see if they'd burn, out, burn, <laughs> us, burn each other out, you know, first. <laughs> who was, tell them who, who, who was the ringleader. Who was Albert was. Yeah, Albert was yeah, the big trouble, little trouble. Yeah, That's what it did. Big danger foot. Big danger foot, it was. It was. Albert was the... He was an instigator of everything. <laughs> At that end of that the hall where we played in, it was Mrs. Bush had this, I don't even remember her mister, but it was Mrs. Bush owned that house. And it was a big tree on the end of her lot for, for her yard, and it extended out over her leg. And Albert would climb up in that and extend out over her. And she would keep down there swinging the broom at him, you know, trying to chase him off. And naturally, we're telling him it's not her property. <laughs> that kind of stuff. But uh, he would even, uh, he, he was a mean old guy, kid, when we when I think back about it. He, We'd, like little birds in the in the nest, get tie a string on them on a the branch here, and then tickle them till they jumped out and they'd hang themselves. <laughs> 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 Who in, in, in fish, on the upper end of that hall, I can always remember this. Now we all we was all good black snake weapons because the, the mine had electric cords, and uh, they made boy they made beautiful whips because they had a couple wires sticking out of them. You could cut just about everything. And you put them on a stick, you know, crack it. We all had them. Everybody had them, you know. And then, anyway, up the top of that hollow, these kids had some nice fish. So we snuck up there one night and with our seine and stole all our fish and brought it down to our pond. Well, they knew we'd get it right away. It is down there. The next day, going to take our fish back. And I can always remember Elvis cracking that whip. Go ahead. Touch them, you know. <laughs> <laughs> But they came back that night and poured oil on the top of our water, oh, killed all the fish. Oh, <laughs> man. Hey, yeah. All right, next question. Yeah. Where were you and what were you doing when you heard about the attack on Pearl Harbor? Well, see, where was we? Really, trying to think of just where we was at. But I know we was awful afraid because, you know, we still had the old, uh, what you call them, in charge of the country. And I remember him announcing it over the radio, you know. Everybody was, we thought like the world was coming to an end, you yeah. know, oh, jeez, what's this all about? There hadn't been no trouble. There was, and now you have to remember this, what happened outside of your town, you didn't know about Well, like today, we know what happens in, anywhere in the world. You got it right now. Well, you didn't know nothing about next door, the next neighbor town. If we, if I got into Washington for a haircut, that's about the only time I'd go there and I would be lost every time. Mom would drop me off at the barber's there. Journey was evening after work. Then it might be daylight when I went in the barber's, and it might be dark when I come out. I'd be lost every time. And Washington ain't no bigger than, you know, this field. <laughs> but that was about the only time, you know, you got out of your out of your town. And generally, you know, when you, you got a haircut, it was, you need it. <laughs> That's, and it was a quarter. So you would have been, that was 42. So you'd have been 13. Yeah. Yeah. 13. I, uh, I, 
the scene, no, 28, 10 to 19. Actually, 39 was when it was starting to build, you know. And, uh, and the draft went into place in, I think, 41, I think. And that's when uh, Jim was already injured, so he couldn't pass the physical to go. So George and Albert were next and went. And I know before the war got over with, I was 16 and I was wanting to, everybody wanted to go. I mean, there was no trouble about getting, in, you know, drafted or enlisted or whatever. Naturally, Mom and them wouldn't even hear to that stuff, you know, let me go there. Because I was 18. The war ended, I think, what, in 45. Uh, was it somewhere like October or something in 45? 45. Yeah. And I was drafted in April of 45. And, uh, and I was already, I was overseas already before the war ended. And I spent 13 months in Korea at that time. We were relieving the veterans. And it was a scary thing because now the veterans had come up as far as Korea because, you know, we were getting ready to invade Japan. Now, Albert and them was all in different islands, but they were getting set for their, everybody was getting set to make that big move towards Japan. But uh, these guys had been in the, well, they'd been through, they'd been, it ain't like today's world. You went in the back home and were like, see, the, the Vietnam War where they flew you in and out each night like they, you know, helicopter them in and fight in the brush and whatever he was doing and take them back out. And that's how, that's why dope got to be the way it is. Them kids had to be doped up like crazy because they had to go out the next day and they'd be scared to death, you know. So that's that's how the, that's how the, the drugs got so heavy in the service. But as a matter of fact, Dave got, uh, as Dave Miller, he got decorated, he got a silver star or something because I went in, into uh, Cleveland and they Gave it to him. Yeah, he it was a general Purple Heart. Then another yes. distinguished thing. But it dropped down at their helicopter to pick up some guys that was, that was being, you know, pinned down or whatever it was. And Dave jumped out of the helicopter with his machine gun, and his glasses fell off. Well, Dave can't see from here to that, well, nowhere with his glasses off. So he was scared to death. So. He just started to rake his gun back and forth, and it was effective because it was going in the direction of where it was supposed to go, and he was able to get the guys out of there. And he held them down, so they got them loaded up. But <laughs> yeah, he was something. Yeah, that was it. As far as remember what what he said, you know, you were military police. Yeah, in the, yeah, I went to school. Yeah, we went to a provost school for uh, six was it six twelve weeks? I think it was over there. Uh, I took my basic in uh, Kentucky, Fort Knox. Were you in the Army then? Um, mm-hmm. And uh, uh, didn't get a furlough or nothing to come home. We got a delay in route. In other words, I had so many days to report to California. That's where I was going, where I was going to Pittsburgh, California, rather than report to Camp Stoneman out there, and which was a lot of days. So I was able to come home, you know, have some time at home and then go out that way. Train, actually train, train all the way across. How long did it take? Almost a couple of days, three, four days, like that to get there. Was it train. Train? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah part of the time you had seats, and part of the time you sat on your duffel bag. <laughs> but uh, that's. What was your uh, What was your arrival overseas like? Where was it? When was yeah, it? Yeah, I, I, we landed in Incheon, Korea. That's where we did. 
let's see, in April, and we, April, I was June, July, I, October, I was over there in, in Korea already. In 45? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was scary. Like I said, the, we had to uh, go ashore on them barges that they had, you know, because mm-hmm. the ships can't get in close enough. And some of the guys were so nervous that their duffel bags would be over the side of the dead mist because you had to throw it down off the ship, you know, uh-huh. the thing. And guys would have to dive in and get their duffel bags uh-huh. out of the water. But we were sc- we were scared. I was only 18, you know. It just was How long were you there? About 13 months uh, over there. I was a year and a half in. But, uh, <laughs> sure, I, I, I remember, you got to remember, I'd been nowhere. I think I was down in West Virginia uh, with uh, Albert and Libby one time. And that's as far as I'd ever been away from home, you know. And, uh, and now I'm getting on a train and going to Pittsburgh. And, mm, well, it was, seemed like that was another year away. <laughs> and there went up to, the story was on this too. Was, we went to Maryland. That was our induction center at Fort George G. Meade, Maryland. Now I'm drafted, remember? And uh, the war is ending. And now they're trying to get the draftees to stop. Well, it was still going on, but when you got there, they was wanting you to join the regular army. That was what was called the regular army, because draftees had so much more, the, can't say freedom, but they couldn't do as much with the draftees as they could with the regular army. You know, Dad told me, don't sign nothing. Now, he evidently knew, but, you know, you don't pay no attention to Dad, you know. So when I got over, I didn't. I didn't sign nothing. I was there maybe a week. It was about a, got down to maybe a half a dozen of those guys that hadn't signed. But the rest of them had all had signed. And uh, every day they kind of brainwash you, you know, mm-hmm. about signing this red army. That's going to give us a discharge from the draftees. I've got two discharges. One from the drafted army and one from the regular army. So anyway, end results was, now it's raining this day. And it's sloppy out. And they took us to an open pavilion. And they're harping on again about the regular army, the benefits, and what it was. And here come these guys along this ditch line in Israel. And they're picking cigarette butts. And he said, the guy says, that's the only job we got left for draftees. You know, I mean, we're not going to do nothing with you guys. Mm-hmm. We, we're going to assign So they give us $100, muster and out pay, out of the draftees and into the regular armies. Never left nothing. You know, it was just paper transfer. And so then I was in a, a regular army down then. Then we went from Fort George D. Lee to Kentucky. And, uh, you know, Kentucky's not that far away. But it seemed like from, <laughs> I was in another world, you know. Um, and, uh, what did you stay in when you were over in Korea? Well, it was the first night we was there, uh, it was kind of cold. And they had set up tents for us to stay in, six-man tents. And uh, we were a pretty good-sized tent, probably as there was this room here on this, but the bunks went right around a square. Mm-hmm. And it was six of us to a tent. And uh, there was a pole in the middle. You know, tent. Yeah. And we tied our duffel bags around them and locked them. We had strapped them. And uh, it was so cold, I can remember putting more more stuff under me than on me because mm-hmm. of the cold air coming up through. So we got up in the morning. There was no duffel bags. That was them, old Korean, them old Koreans are professional thieves. Now, they knew we were rookies, you know. And they came in and cut them bags loose and took every one. We never knew it. Wow. <laughs> so we had to get all this. 
this is when I was done. This is when I was going to go to that school for to be an MP, mm-hmm. and that's where we was at. Then after that, then we got into the buildings, you know, around there. Most most of the buildings you stayed in was quonsites, uh, tin metal things, yeah. and plywood floors. That was the basic ones, and they were oiled. And there was a lot of fires on them. Just almost every night when we burned down, you know, because mm-hmm. of the oil on the floor. They were cold. The, the first we was allowed to keep heat in them, but after so many of those caught on fire, they made us shut the heat off, so you'd be, you'd be cold. cold. Next one is, uh, well, let me cross that off. We're, we're in the search. Um, where were you and what were you doing when you heard about President Roosevelt's death? I just can't get my mind to thinking about him where he was at. See, the thing, that's big things. You know, where was you at, like, when this happened? Where yeah. were you at when that happened? That wasn't a big deal at that time. Where was you at when these kind of things happened? Yeah. But it was a it was a scary thing for us because he was the, had been the leader, you know. Yeah, for, he did a lot of good. Yeah. But they claim today he did, you know, they claim today he started Social Security. When you think about it today, without Social Security, how many people couldn't even retire at all, yeah. you know? So it ain't, and you pay into it all your time. It's the government misuses that. There's, mm-hmm. They've even, uh, even backed the war with a lot of that Social Security money. So they misused it so much. Yeah. Did you know anything about Harry Truman before yeah. he became president? <laughs> well, we didn't know about him, but the, we knew he was, you know, that he was a captain in the service. And that he was tough, and uh, uh, he, MacArthur, and him were the were the MacArthur naturally was a general, you know, mm-hmm. during world, during all the World War, and uh, he was on the uh, he was in the uh, well, I guess you'd want to call that the eastern part of the up through all the islands and whatnot. That was the MacArthur side. The other side was Eisenhower, if you remember, Europe, and uh, but anyway. MacArthur would pay no attention to to Truman. Mm-hmm. He's only a captain and he's a general. <laughs> he didn't know nothing. And Truman hated him for it and did everything in the world to to get MacArthur out of there. And he did in the end. But the news that on that time was we lost so many guys because of what Truman done. Because mm-hmm. uh, there was they put the troops in such a bad position over there, letting Eisenhower go that there was a lot of killing that happened to the troops. But, uh, no, outside of that, uh, the biggest thing with Truman that you remembered, his daughter played the piano, <laughs> and everybody ridiculed her. And he would, he was, he would get real upset about about that, uh, about her being the you know playing the piano and him. People making fun of her and such like that. But she was probably a good pianist. I don't know. I had to be. <laughs> but that was him. He's a tough. He's a tough old president. And he probably was a good one outside of messing up the war, you know. Because mm-hmm. whenever Eisenhower, whenever, whenever uh, uh, 
MacArthur said that the war started in Korea. Now remember, I was in Korea. Mm-hmm. Korean, when I was there, I would say they were a couple thousand years behind us. That's all. Yeah. That's the way that country was. Everything was horse carts. I mean, they didn't have no transportation. The only thing they had in transportation, uh, Japan occupied them for 40 years prior to us being there. And they didn't have nothing. And only what the Japanese lift, some old trucks. You ever hear of a Coke-fired engine? Mm-hmm. Well, they had a Coke pan on the, on the side of them, not that big around. And somehow the Coke's fumes was what fired that truck. Really? And sucked it up and fired the engine. And they rattled and banged and crashed and whatnot, <laughs> you know. And the wheels, you know, they were pretty well shot because yeah. Japan would have took them home. But they kept them running. That was the only transportation you've seen. And it would do 5, 10, 15 miles an hour. You know, that was it at most. There was an incident. These Koreans could carry anything. They start carrying their babies as kitties that be two, three years old. If they had a baby, they, they, you know, they, them kids carried them. So they, they were awful. They were small people, but could carry. I'm gonna tell you a couple incidents that happened with them. But uh, anyway, I'm now I'm in the MPs and I'm on this, I'm on this guard gate, this road between Shul and Incheon, and here come all them trucks. And anything that's moving like that, I mean, they hover on it. Looked like a, it looked like a. Uh, a bee's nest, you know, people mm-hmm. hung on the road they could get a hand on it or a foot, you know. <laughs> and so whenever they got to the gate, you had to stop them. You had to check the truck and make everybody get off, you know, yeah. all that stuff. And now they're getting back on. And this here uh, older woman, old woman, she maybe not wasn't as old to me, you know. Yeah. At that time, probably somebody 30 years old was old yeah. to me. <laughs> so anyway, I said, oh, I did. You couldn't speak language with a lot of hand movement. I said, you get, you know, get up in the truck and I'll, I'll hand that rice in the bag of rice up to you. And you know, damn, I couldn't get that rice in the further in my chest. It would, that thing weighed 100 pounds or better at the time. And now they're all laughing. <laughs> and that old, that old woman jumped down out of that truck and grabbed that sack. <laughs> oh, my. I could have shot them all. <laughs> well, that was comic, but that was, you know. But, uh, to tell you now, now later on in time, I got transferred to a trucking transportation company, big one. And uh, in the center of our that company, they had this building that stored the Jeep engines in. A lot of lot of engines in there. Those Koreans come in. Now this was in the middle of the camp. No, this is not in down in the motor pool. They come in there. They had these. They had these, uh, look like wishbones like this here, it would uh, come on their back and over their shoulder. Mm-hmm. And anything they'd get in that thing, they carried. And you'd see them guys going down the road just a wobble and carrying whatever was in them. they came in there one night and stole most of those motors. And the only way they could get them out was on that wow. pack they had on their back. Next, next question is, uh, where were you and what were you doing when you heard about the dropping of the... Atomic bomb on Japan. Oh, jeez. Where else we at? When we left? That would have that would have happened. Uh, I would imagine I was probably trying to think was what I should have. I've been out. Should have been out in California when that happened. Because we went over seas right after that. Because you know that pretty much ended the war right there. Yeah. That did. So. 
That's where we'd be probably at, was in California at that time when I heard it. And, and naturally, uh, they showed some pictures of it in the paper. And such. That's where I see most of the pictures. Yeah. Until later on in the summer film. We brought around the fences. And the guys, he was old. Anything, he'd, any scrap that you'd see, hit motion to it, well, he'd pick it up and throw it over the fence to it, you know. And he was happy to get it. And uh, the motor pool, now this would be like up here. The motor pool's down here, I'd say, I'd say two or three hundred yards. And that damn kid laid that gun up on the post. We thought he was just, you know, sighting in, you know, which a lot of guys did. And that old guy had slipped under the fence. There was a big hole where he'd come under if he, if he, you know, you handle him something big, he'd come under and get it. And he hit that guy, and you could see the spot where he hit him, not far and not. And that was 15 feet, you know. But he shot that was murder, you know. Yeah, he was really shot. But they transferred him. Trans yeah, they transferred him. The guys were all upset with it. The first night on guard now, when it went to this, since we were in MP, MPs, we went there, there was several of us went to this company. Now we were big shots because we'd had this school and they was all tickled to get us. And the first night, my job was to walk on the, the outer border of all the truck was, When I say a truck, there's hundreds of trucks in there. And so you walk around. thank you guys for listening i hope that uh, those that knew him really enjoyed that episode and it it evoked uh, the same reactions that we all see each other have every time that we talk about them and a little mix of smiling and crying um and for those of you that did not i hope that it made you think of somebody that um, maybe like i said is no longer here and it was able to provide a just a moment of reflection to where you're able to think and reminisce and kind of go back into the memory bank and it um, has you smiling and thinking of of all the good times. And like I also said, if there's somebody in your life right now that you want to reach out to or that you haven't talked to in a while, um, I encourage you to do that. Life is so short. Reach out to that person and, and just tell them that you love them. Tell them that you appreciate them uh, and that you're, you're grateful for having them in your life or that the time that you spent together uh, did in fact impact you and, and, and meant a lot to you. I was honored and blessed to be able to read um, something that I wrote for Pap at his, at his funeral, and I still have that on my computer, and I'd like to read it to you now as we close out this episode. It was part of his eulogy. I, I have taken out a couple portions that uh, were a little on, more on the personal side that we shared, um, so I'd like, to, I'd like to just read that to you now. As a kid, I was always impressed at the way that Pap would use his finger to shoot the red light and make it turn green. I always found peace in his willingness to take a bite out of my bologna sandwich to see if it was poison or not. I felt like I was in control of the entire world when I would sit up on his lap while driving the big red tractor. I would tell all my friends how indestructible Pap was, and I could tell that by just looking at his hands. This is the day that we have all thought about. This is the day that we have all talked about, and this is the day that we have all prayed about. This is also the day that we have all feared. There's no denying that it is here, and each of our lives will be forever changed. Each of us encounter any number of true life-changing events throughout our lives, but even fewer 
life-changing people. So what is it about a person that whenever they walk into the room, everyone is immediately drawn to them? What is it about a person that the mere sight of them or hearing their voice makes you feel good and smile? This mysterious and magnetic charm poured out of Pap on a daily basis. You sit back and think about Pap. It really is impossible not to smile. I think the answer to this question can be summed up into one word. Love. Pap loved, and he loved hard. And what drew people to Pap was the fact that he was drawn to them first. See, Pap loved those around him with the kind of energy and passion that we can all learn from. Pap loved his children. He loved his countless grandchildren and great-grandchildren. But most of all, Pap loved his wife, Avis. Their unwavering passion for each other will be forever inspiring. And it is true that our hearts will be heavy because Pap is no longer here. And it is true that this is one of those life-changing events. And it is true that he was a one-of-a-kind. Pap rounded third and he slid feet first into home. He made it. As we go our separate ways, we must remember the biggest lesson he ever taught any of us. Love. Floyd Richard Grimm was born on January 22nd, 1928 and passed away March 11th, 2015 at the age of 87. He was laid to rest in his baseball uniform. We miss you, Pat. <laughs>